All right, we are continuing our study in our book from the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, and we are now in chapter 9. Chapter 8 dealt with the Old Covenant, and it talked in that chapter about the roots of the covenant, that is, where the Old Covenant came from, the content of the Old Covenant, what were its terms, and the features of the Old Covenant, what were some things that were Uh, especially notable in relationship to that covenant. Uh, But one of the things we know about the old covenant is that it passed away. And we're going to be talking about that today. And we're going to talk about how that some of the things in the old covenant passed away and some of the things that were in it did not. So what we want to do then is begin to address the issue of the old covenant in terms of Uh, what passed away and what remains uh, in that covenant. Now, um, our our chapter opened with an illustration I thought was really good. And it's the illustration of when you're building a building, you build scaffolding around that building to assist you in its construction. And uh, the scaffolding is absolutely essential during the construction phase. You can't do the construction without it. But once the building is completed, then the scaffolding is no longer necessary and you tear it down and you haul it off and you don't need it and you don't want it anymore. Indeed, if you left it up, it would actually impede the usefulness of the building. And so in the same way, God has been building his redemptive plan. Uh, We saw that with the Abrahamic covenant, that plan was, was put in motion. Uh, in terms of the promises that God made to Abraham, that he would have a seed, that he would have a land, and that he would have the blessing. And that covenant then was given to Abraham, and in order for it to be implemented and carried on and carried out, there needed to be some scaffolding built around it in order to assist its development, growth, and implementation. And the scaffolding that was built around the Abrahamic covenant was the old covenant. And once the purposes of the Abrahamic covenant had come to full maturity, then that scaffolding, namely the old covenant, was torn down and removed. And uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll see um, just exactly how that is declared. Uh, in the Bible itself. Galatians chapter 3. Now start out at verse 16. Galatians 3.16. Now clearly here it's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. All right, Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not, and to seeds as of many but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. Okay, so clearly he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant and the promises made to Abraham, right? Verse 17, and this I say that the covenant, that is the Abrahamic covenant, that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, that is the old covenant, now notice, which was 430 years later cannot disannul the Abrahamic covenant 
that it should make the promises of the Abrahamic covenant of none effect. So what he's saying is, is, look, the Abrahamic covenant was instituted. 430 years later, the old covenant was added to it. Now, I say added to it because it didn't replace it. And it didn't disannul it. It was just brought in alongside. Just like the scaffolding doesn't replace the building, it's just brought in alongside the building. Okay? So you start out with a foundation and you start building stuff and then later on you put up the scaffolding, right? And so in the same way, the foundation for redemption was laid in the Abrahamic covenant and then after some time, 430 years, the scaffolding began to be constructed around it, namely the old covenant, all right? So verse 17, this I say that the Abrahamic covenant, it was confirmed before of God in Christ, the old covenant, which came 430 years later, cannot disannul the Abrahamic covenant or make the promises it contains of no effect. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, that is the promises that come from the Abrahamic covenant, be of the old covenant, then it is no more of the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? What's the purpose of the old covenant? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. For how long? Until the seed should come. Who's that? Who's the seed? Jesus Christ. Okay, we're told that up in verse 16 right? And to thy seed, which is Christ. Last phrase of verse 16. So why was the scaffolding put around the Abrahamic covenant? It says specifically because of transgressions. That is in order to restrain sin. Now, the problem with national Israel is if they didn't have the strictures of the old covenant, they would very quickly as a nation, become blended into the nations around them. And one of the great purposes of the Old Covenant was to make them so culturally distinct and separate from the nations around them that they wouldn't and couldn't intermix and intermarry with them and thus wind up having the nation dissolved, diluted, and absorbed into the surrounding nations around them. It was also there to restrain the sins of the people uh, morally, so that they would be a holy people. You recall that that was uh, one of the purposes of the old covenant, right? Um, God said, you shall be to me uh, a kingdom of priests, and you shall be to me a holy nation, as well as being a particular or a peculiar treasure to me above all people. So he says, you'll be a peculiar treasure to me above all people. You'll be a kingdom of priests, you'll be a holy nation. The Old Covenant was necessary to provide the laws and the strictures that would make that possible and bring that to pass. And so um, the Old Covenant very tightly controlled Israel to restrain her sin and to restrain her from becoming mixed with the nations around her. So it says, verse 19, for what purpose does the old covenant serve? It was added 
because of transgressions, the sinfulness of the people, to restrain it for how long until the seed should come to whom the promise is made. And once the seed showed up, then, then the building was completed. And what happened to the scaffolding? It was removed because it was no longer necessary. The old covenant actually impedes the function of the new covenant, just like scaffolding would actually impede the usefulness of the building. It blocked the windows, blocked the doorways, uh, blocked the light. Um, it, you know, it would just be an ugly annoyance. And that's what the old covenant is now, uh, where we try to reinstitute it under the new covenant. So <clears throat> it says then in verse... Uh, 21 is the old covenant then against or contrary to the promises of God, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. No, it wasn't against them. It wasn't contrary to them. He says, but if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. And, and the point is the old covenant never brought life to anybody. It never brought salvation to anybody. It wasn't a saving covenant. It wasn't a covenant that saved anybody. Um, and he says, if it was, then we could have gotten righteousness through it. Verse 22, but the scripture has concluded all under sin. or all as sinful people that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. For before the faith came, that is, before the new covenant came, we were kept under the old covenant, shut up or constrained and closed as a nation um, until the faith, the new covenant, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the old covenant was our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so the old covenant was like a, um, a nanny. It was like a, um, well, he called a schoolmaster here. And, and I suppose that's, that's a fine term. Uh, the idea of a chaperone, that's the word I wanted. It, it, was, it was a chaperone to watch over us, guard us, protect us until Messiah should come. And once he came, then it was no longer necessary. So it's kind of like if you uh, hire babysitters to watch your kids while you're gone. And then when you come home, what do you do with the babysitters? You dismiss them because they're no longer necessary because you're there now. And so uh, Jesus, as it were, uh, gave the law as a babysitter to the people of God until he would come. And then when he came, he dismissed the babysitter is another way of another analogy that in fact the scriptures itself uses. Um, so that's what um, the opening paragraph is, is saying. Now, uh, the thing we need to understand, somebody asked the other day, you know, why was so much of the Old Testament used up in the Old Covenant when it was just temporary and was going to pass away? And the answer is, um, is that that period of time was not wasted. Uh, our memory verse today says, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so these things were done uh, to teach us a whole bunch of lessons. 
So, for example, when we read the book of Psalms, we read the book of Proverbs, uh, we read about the Exodus, um, we read about life under the kings, we learn a ton of principles about how we should live the Christian life. So what we have there is a huge compendium of vital life lessons uh, as well as the unfolding of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant so that we can see how God's plan of redemption marvelously develops over the period of many, many centuries. So uh, the Old Testament is, is very valuable. And as I quoted at the beginning, uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness including all the things that happened under the old covenant. All right. Now we have to understand then that the old covenant did pass away. And, and the reason why it passed away is you remember it was an if then covenant. He says, if you will um, obey my laws that I give you, and if you will keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar people to me above all nations. Then You'll be a kingdom of priests, then you will be a holy nation. And of course, Israel didn't keep the if part. And so ultimately, the old covenant was done away with because of the inability of one of the parties to keep their share of the bargain. And so uh, for that reason, the old covenant passed away. The other reason why the old covenant passed away is because its function as being a schoolmaster, a chaperone, a babysitter, if you will, of the covenant community was no longer necessary because dad showed up, namely Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, ultimately the Lord Jesus showed up and he then became the one who uh, controlled and directed the covenant community and no longer was it necessary to have the old covenant doing that job. Uh, Jesus stepped in and did a superior job. So those are the two reasons why it passed away. It was the weakness and the unprofitableness of the covenant itself, number one. And number two, its purposes were finally completely fulfilled. All right. So what we want to talk about then is the things that pass away and the things that remain. Now, the things that pass away are really two things. One is the ceremonial law and the other is the civil law. Now we have said that the law of God that was given under the old covenant can be divided into three categories. There's the moral law, which is the 10 commandments. You remember they were written on stone. They are written by the finger of God himself and handed to Moses. And these stone tablets were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, which was the went in the Holy of Holies, the box that went in the Holy of Holies, had the mercy seat on top, kind of glory of God dwelt over the top of it. And, um, and then there was the book of the covenant and the book of the covenant contained the ceremonial law, which had to do with the temple and the priesthood and the animal sacrifices and all the ceremonies of purification and all the, the feast days and the fast days and, and, and those types of observances. And then there was the civil law, and that had to do with um, the kings and how they functioned, the judges and how they functioned, and the civil penalties that were involved when people violated the civil law. For example, death penalty or penalties for theft or penalties for 
um, various other transgressions. Uh, and then, of course, there was a whole series of laws about how people were to treat each other, uh, laws relating commerce, um, when you could buy and sell, um, whether you could charge interest or not, um, and a whole host of laws that related to um, the civil transactions, cities of refuge, um, those types of things. So there was the ceremonial law and there was the civil law. Now, when we say that the ceremonial law and the civil law has passed away, what that means is that they do not apply to Christians now in the same way they did under the old covenant. They passed away in the sense that we do not have to obey them, but they have not passed away in the sense of their abiding relevance to us in terms of teaching us life lessons. Okay, so like I said, we can learn a great deal from the civil law and the ceremonial law of the old covenant. For one thing, the ceremonial law, all its ceremonies point to what? They point to Jesus Christ. They point to the salvation he's going to accomplish. So the animal sacrifices are a picture of his sacrifice on the cross. Um, the, uh, the temple is a picture of the new covenant church. Um, the uh, priests are, are a picture of Jesus' priestly work. And so there's a huge number of lessons we can draw uh, out of those things in terms of their new covenant application. So it doesn't mean they're irrelevant. It simply means we don't have to carry them out. Now, um, I thought our book did a really good job of explaining the transition away from the ceremonial law and why that was necessary. Remember, we talked about one of the purposes of the ceremonial law was to provide Israel with such a distinctive culture and religious practice that it would maintain its separateness and its distinction from all of the cultures around it. Okay, so they were a means of making the people of Israel outwardly and culturally distinct from the nations around them. And this included all the dietary regulations and all those kinds of things. Now, you recall in Acts chapter 10, when uh, God decided to save Cornelius, he sent uh, a, a vision to Peter. And, in, and this vision was a, was a cloth with all these unclean animals that the Jews weren't supposed to eat in it. And God said to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. So the children of Israel didn't eat what the nations around them ate. With the result that they didn't eat together. And so it limited their interaction, their social interaction with each other a great deal, which was the whole purpose. But now that God is going to move outside of Jewish society and no longer is the covenant community going to be defined as a single uh, nation of people like the Jews, all of these things that kept them distinct from the nations now have to be removed. And so what God was saying to Peter is, look, Peter, these ceremonial laws that kept you separate from the Gentiles uh, have been abrogated. They passed away. And now I want you to go into the house of a Gentile where he wasn't supposed to go. I want you to sit down and eat with him and eat their food that previously you couldn't eat. And the reason why I want you to do this is because I want you to reach these people. And so it used to be stay separated from the world. And now the Great Commission is what? Go into all the world. 
and preach the gospel to every creature. And so Cornelius represents the beginning of a long expected shift towards the worldwide propagation of the gospel among the Gentiles. And so a key issue in the worldwide spread of the gospel was that those things which were distinct to the Jewish culture had to be put away and put aside. Because we can't go into all the world if we're living in such a a way that's so distinct from them that we can't even sit down and eat a meal with them or go into their homes. And so therefore the teachings that we we get under the new covenant have a, a, a pulling away of this notion of, of total separateness. And we now have a restricted separateness. Now the Bible tells us be not, unequ- be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But he doesn't say don't eat with them. He doesn't say don't go into their homes. He doesn't say, you know, refuse to participate in their uh, neutral cultural practices. Now, <clears throat> let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 11 and following. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Now, Paul here is talking to Gentiles, all right? Verse 11, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time, that is before Christ came, you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. In other words, you Gentiles, if you didn't come into the Jewish nation, there was no hope of salvation for you. But, verse 13, now, but now, in contrast to how it used to be in Christ Jesus, ye who at one time were afar off or made near by the blood of Christ. Now you're brought into the covenant community by the blood of Christ before you were kept outside the covenant community. Now notice verse 14. This is a key verse, 14 and 15. For he, Jesus, is our peace. That is the peace between Jew and Gentile, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile one. And how did he do it? He broke down the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile. How? Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh or by his coming the enmity. And here's what the enmity was. Even the law of commandment contained in ordinances. That is the old covenant thereby to make in himself of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, Christians, so making peace between Jew and Gentile. So what what did Jesus do? He came and he abolished that dividing wall that stood between the Jew and the Gentile. What was the dividing wall that stood between the Jew and the Gentile? It was the old covenant with all of its restrictions, which said, you will not mix with the people around you. You won't wear their clothes. You won't uh, eat their food. 
You won't go in their homes. You won't intermarry with their people. Uh, you won't have anything to do. Those are uncircumcised people and you're circumcised. And that's a huge wall of division between you. And what Jesus did is he came and he just removed the wall. And that was the big issue. You remember in Acts chapter 15, uh, where Jews said, certain, certain people said, uh, except to be circumcised after the manner of the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul said, no way. And they had this big dispute in the big Jerusalem council. And at the Jerusalem council, it was declared the middle wall of partition is gone. The Gentiles can be accepted as Gentiles into the church, just like the Jews can be accepted as Jews into the church. And they both are viewed as Christians and have equal standing. And so what we have then is this tearing down of this middle wall of partition. Now, teachings, therefore, that encourage Christians to go back and start celebrating and observing some of these Jewish ordinances are really anti-Christian. And what this is, is the modern um, Messianic Jewish movement where Christians are, are encouraged to celebrate the Passover and to uh, observe Old Testament dietary restrictions and that somehow these things are going to increase our spirituality or they're going to make us more uh, biblical because uh, after all, the early Christians were immersed in Jewish culture and so we need to be immersed in Jewish culture as well. So it's important for us to not return to any kind of ritualism uh, that is either the same as what the Jews engaged in or something that is created uh, to replace it. Uh, so, for example, you see a lot of ceremonial law being re-erected in Roman Catholicism. Uh, one of the things among many are, are, are holy days of obligation. Uh, things like the observation of Lent. Uh, things like ritualistic acts of, of bowing and crossing yourself when you enter the church. Uh, when I was a Catholic and we went into the church, uh, you would dip your hand in the holy water and you would kneel like this and you would cross yourself like this uh, before the crucifix that was up there on the wall. What is that? It's just an effort to reimpose uh, ritualism that was expunged when the old covenant was done away with. And so it says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23, those things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So the new covenant has entirely stripped away the ceremonies that were meant to be temporary. God's purpose from the beginning is not to have us be a ceremony-based people, but to be a word-based people under the new covenant. Now, do we have ceremonies under the new covenant? Do we? What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are our two ceremonies. Uh, but... Old Testament Judaism was primarily ceremonial. I mean, that was the whole heart and focus of what they did, uh, whereas ours is, is based in the word of God um, and the preaching of the word. So this then is the uh, ceremonial law that passed away. And the reason why it passed away is because it was there to separate 
Jewish culture from all other cultures. Now we want to combine all cultures in the church. And therefore, we have to do away with those cultural divisions, that middle wall of partition, so that someone can come in from um, African culture, someone can come in from uh, Japanese culture, someone can come in from European culture, and guess what? We all get along just fine, and we don't have to not interact with each other. Uh, whereas that was impossible under Old Covenant Judaism. So we have to be careful not to think that American culture is the equivalent of, of um, biblical practice. There are things we do in American culture that are unique to us, and in other cultures might do them differently, and you know what? It's perfectly fine. Um, and uh, they may have different styles of music, for example. And to them, it's, it's just as reverent as our style of music. Um, and so dress, they dress differently than we do. Um, and, and those things are, are things that we have to, Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. He says, those who were without the law, I lived as, as one without the law. Those who were under the law, I lived as those who were under the law. And, um, you know, if you go into Japanese culture, better take off your shoes before you go into people's house. Um, and so there, there's lots of different things that people do and that we do that we can't say, oh, this is Christian. We have to really ask ourselves, does the Bible really require that or does the Bible really forbid that? Now, it's true. The moral law of the scriptures are going to reform the morality of any culture. But things that are um, not moral, um, there's a room for a phenomenal amount of flexibility. Whereas under the old covenant, there was no flexibility. Um, it even told you, you know, you couldn't wear clothing of mixed thread. It got down to that level of detail. There was no flexibility in any area of life. All right. <clears throat> so that's the passing away of the ceremonial law. We need to be careful not to return to any kind of ritualism because the human heart loves ritual. The fallen heart loves it um, because uh, it's externalism and um, our fallen nature uh, rebels against uh, inward heart spirituality. And we like to go through forms because they really don't um, offend our flesh the way true inward heart religion does. All right, next time we're going to talk about the civil law passing away and the fact that under the new covenant, we are not to seek political theocracy as a church. That's not our mission. That's not our goal. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of Christian reconstructionism. Okay, Christian reconstructionism is a system of theology um, championed by R.J. Rushdoony and others who teach that the mission of the church is to reassert uh, the law of God and civil government and to establish theocracy. And while certainly Christianity is going to have an impact on the civil government, the question is, is what is the mission of the church in relationship to the civil government? And is it primary or is it merely tangential? And I would suggest that it's tangential. I wouldn't suggest that. I would say the Bible clearly teaches that. Okay. All right. Well, let's pray together. 
Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the clarity that it contains. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to rightly understand what parts of it directly apply to us. All of it has some application to us, but some parts directly apply to us and others no longer do so. Father, give us wisdom to understand the distinction between ceremonial and civil and moral law and to understand what parts we no longer need to follow and what parts we should um, certainly submit ourselves to. In Jesus' name, amen.